right? My name is Gerhard Hafner. I'm professor of international law at the University of Vienna. I want to speak today about the United Nations Convention on Jurisdictional Immunities of States and their property. In December 2004, the General Assembly adopted without a vote the United Nations Convention on Jurisdictional Immunities of States and their property. It had taken quite a long time to achieve this result, despite or even because of the fact that state immunity has always been a central element of state-to-state -state relations. I would like now to explain this legal institution of state immunity against the background of this convention. Of course, I cannot explain the convention in all its details, but the main gist and political framework should be laid out here. International law is based on the principle of equality of states. This equality implies a mutual independence of states and is closely connected with the sovereignty of states itself. One could even say that sovereignty and equality of states, ensuring therefrom, constitute a necessary prerequisite to the existence of international law. This is confirmed by the history of international law that only came into existence after entities of equal status appeared which were not subject to each other. Thus, the Spanish international lawyers of the 16th and 17th centuries, such as Suarez, emphasized this principle, and Grotius himself based his work, De Jure Bellic Ac Pazis Libri Tres, on the equality of states. This function as a foundation of international law and relations is also reflected in Article 2, Paragraph 1, of the Charter of the United Nations, stating that the organization is based on the principle of sovereign equality of states. The Secretary General even stated that the, quote, doctrines of sovereignty and equality of states have provided the basis of international law since the emergence of a society of independently governed states, unquote. Since states are acting through their organs and acts performed by them, equality implies that also the organs, as far as they act as such, and their activities are not subject to the exercise of sovereignty by other states. Consequently, a state is, by virtue of international law, precluded from exercising its authority and sovereignty over foreign states, their property, their organs, as well as the latter's activities without the consent of this foreign state. Since states are acting through their organs and acts performed by them, equality implies that also the organs, as far as they act as such, and their activities are not subject to the exercise of sovereignty by other states. Consequently, a state is by virtue of international law precluded from exercising its authority and sovereignty over foreign states their property, their organs, as well as the latter activities, without the consent of this foreign state. The exercise of authority becomes manifest not only through the exercise of forcible acts, but also in conformity with the three branches of state power, the executive, legislative, and judicial branch, by the exercise of jurisdiction through judicial, administrative proceedings, the delivery of judgments, 
application and enforcement of laws and administrative regulations of the state. In order to protect the sovereignty and equality of states against the exercise of authority by other states, international law has developed the legal instrument of immunity. The basic and general idea of immunity is therefore to provide a legal impediment to the application and enforcement of the national legal orders to foreign states. Such immunity found interest in different forms into international law. The oldest form of immunity is certainly diplomatic and consular immunity that guarantees that envoys of other states, such as diplomats or other representatives, can exercise their function as such representatives independently from the exercise of authority of the receiving state. This kind of immunity has existed since the earliest times when states or monarchs sent their envoys to other states or monarchs. Presently, it is codified in the well-known Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations of 1961, and similarly in the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations of 1963. Thus, we have to distinguish different kinds of immunity. On the one hand, regulations of immunity differ with respect to the protected person or property, as these regulations address the immunity of diplomats and persons with similar functions, immunity of special missions sent to foreign states, immunity of objects such as ships, aircrafts or space objects, immunity of states, immunity of international organizations, immunity ratione persone of the highest state organs or officials. On the other hand, these regulations differ insofar as they relate to the different forms of the exercise of state authority and jurisdiction, such as through civil, criminal, and administrative jurisdiction. In this context, we deal here in particular with the jurisdictional immunity of states and their property. Several attempts to formulate a universally acceptable regime of state immunity have been made by international scientific institutions such as the Institut du droit international as early as 1891, 1954 and 1991, or the International Law Association in 1982 and 1994. But for a long time, it was impossible to codify this issue on the global level. It was only in December 2004 that the General Assembly could adopt a resolution without a vote, that means by consensus, on the United Nations Convention on Jurisdictional Immunities of States and Their Property, which was opened for signature in, in January 2005 by Resolution A-59-38. What were the reasons for such a long hesitation to come to a global codification? Originally, the states maintained the idea of absolute immunity, meaning that states could not be sued in foreign courts and that all activities of states enjoyed protection against the jurisdiction of foreign states. The issue of absolute Im jurisdictional immunity of states was for centuries undisputed. In the Schooner Exchange case, immunity was traced back to the, quote, perfect equality and absolute independence of sovereigns 
and this common interest impelling them to mutual intercourse and an interchange of good offices which each another." Unquote. This principle of absolute state immunity was inspired by the mutual respect of monarchs, as well as by the view that states and individuals could not be put on the same footing, could not be treated as equals, proceeding from an apotheosis of the state that was in any case above the individuals. It was also characteristic for the concept of liberalism, according to which states should not engage in commercial activities, but should leave them to private persons and companies. This concept was firmly established in the first decades of the 20th century. However, the situation changed. Already in the first half of the 20th century, states increasingly engaged in commercial activities. According to the communist theory, states even possessed the monopoly of external trade and economy so that exclusively the state could enter into transactions with individuals. In the 20s and 30s of the 20th centuries, domestic courts of Belgium and Italy started to apply a restricted concept of immunity. They distinguished between acta de jure imperii, that means acts undertaken by a state in sovereign capacity, and acta de jure gestionis, that means acts undertaken in a more private capacity, and denied the immunity of states for the latter, namely in particular for commercial acts. Thus, they applied the concept of restrictive state immunity. The Brussels Convention for the Unification of Certain Rules concerning the Immunity of Stateships of 1926 followed this approach, restricting immunity to vessels owned by states as well as cargoes employed exclusively for public and non-commercial purposes. After the end of the Second World War, the concept of restrictive immunity was increasingly accepted by states. They recognized a certain need in this respect, since otherwise they were afraid to be rejected as partners in transactions with individual persons or private companies because of the absence of judicial enforcement of the transactions entered into by them. They were also afraid that banks would not grant them credits if no access to judicial proceedings were guaranteed. With the growing globalization of activities, states increasingly entered into contracts with foreign companies so that access to foreign courts became necessary. However, this concept was accepted by states only gradually. So the different concepts existed throughout a certain period that prevented the general agreement on a common concept. Only in regions that were character characterized by relatively homogeneous economic structure and concept was it possible to elaborate a convention in this field as it was done by the European Convention on State Immunities of 1972. This convention applied the restrictive insofa concept insofar as a state could not invoke immunity in well-defined cases, in particular for commercial transactions, that means transactions qualified by, as such by their nature. But even this convention suffered from the relative scarcity of ratifications. 
The work in the United Nations concerning the elaboration of a convention on this topic started as early as 1949. It included this topic among the issues that could be submitted to codification. However, only in 1972, the General Assembly invited the International Law Commission to commence work on the topic of jurisdictional immunities of states and their property. This commission is the main body of the General Assembly for the codification and progressive development of international law. It presently consists of 34 international lawyers elected by the General Assembly for a duration of five years. This commission, the International Law Commission, included this issue in its program of work in 1978 and elaborated a text containing draft articles and comments upon them, which was submitted to the General Assembly in 1991 with a recommendation to convene an international conference of plenipotentiaries for the conclusion of a convention on this subject. However, the political situation in times of the downfall of communism and of the fundamental changes in the economic system of the states concerned did not provide an appropriate basis for a general agreement on this subject. For these reasons, negotiations were conducted within the Sixth Committee of the General Assembly in order to reconcile the divergent views on the issue. In his report of the working group, its chairman, Mr. Calero Rodriguez, identified and made proposals relating to the most disputed issues, namely the definition of the state, the criteria for determining the commercial character of a transaction, contracts of employment, the question of state enterprises, and measures of constraint or enforcement of judgments. But no agreement could be achieved on these matters. For this reason, the discussions were suspended and taken up only in 1997 in the General Assembly. In the subsequent year, the consultations were resumed with the purpose to consider the five outstanding substantive issues. The International Law Commission was invited to present preliminary comments on these substantive issues in order to facilitate the work of the working group. It delivered a report, including the genesis of the disputed questions, summaries of the recent relevant case law, as well as suggestions for a possible solution to the General Assembly. A working group of the General Assembly and later an ad hoc, ad hoc committee sought to find a compromise on the controversial points. In this context, the form of the possible outcome of the work on the topic was also discussed. Since a number of delegations were in favor of a convention because of the legal certainty, consistency, and clarity of such a result, they argued in particular that the rules of state immunity were to be applied by national courts so that only a binding instrument could generate a uniform state practice in this field. Others supported the creation of a model law which would provide for a more flexibility in an evolving area of law. Finally, states agreed on the form of a convention, subject, however, to certain interpretative explanations. These explanations or understanding, as they were called, were included in an annex to the convention, which was declared as an integral part 
of the letter for the purpose of setting out understanding relating to the provisions concerned. The resolution with which the text was adopted, as well as the chairman of the ad hoc committee, also made further explanation that have to be taken into account in the construction of the text of the Convention according to Article 31 and 32 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. These latter articles define the context on the basis of which a Convention text has to be interpreted. Only on this basis could the text be adopted in December 2004. Of course, further developments cannot be totally excluded since individual states, in particular certain NGOs, required a further restriction of immunity in cases of civil proceedings against a foreign state for cases of grave violation of human rights such as torture. So, for instance, the United States provided such a restriction of immunity in its Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, and the Pinochet case likewise pointed in this direction. However, international decisions by the International Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights did not follow this approach, so that it was not included into the UN Convention, since otherwise it would not have been possible to achieve a general agreement on the text of the Convention. The Convention consists of a preamble that expresses the, convic the conviction that the codification of this area of law in a treaty would enhance the rule of law and legal certainty as well as the harmonization of state practice. It consists also of 33 articles that are divided into five parts and in an annex. Part one is titled Introduction and deals with the scope of the Convention, the definition of the terms court, state, and commercial transactions, privileges and immunities not affected by the Convention, as well as the principle of non-retroactivity. Part two bears the title General Principles and sets out the principle of immunity of a state from jurisdiction of the courts of another state subject to the ex exceptions provided in the Convention. Moreover, it deals with the question of explicit or implied consent to the waiver of immunity. Part 3 enumerates ex lege exceptions to state immunity. Part 4 addresses state immunity from measures of constraint, whereas Part 5 deals with procedural questions regarding service of process, default judgments, and immunities of a state during court proceedings. Part 6 contains final clauses concerning in the relation of the Articles to the Annex, the relation to other international agreements, the settlement of disputes, and denunciation. The Annex to the Convention sets out the understandings with respect to certain provisions, namely Articles 10, 11, 13, 14, 17, and 19. So, and it does not affect the immunity enjoyed ratione persone by heads of state. The statement of the chairman of the ad hoc committee explained that the immunity enjoyed ratione persone by senior officials also falls within the purview of the exception regarding heads of state. 
Hence, issues like the immunity ratione persone of high officials, such as, for instance, ministers of foreign affairs, in criminal proceedings are not addressed by this convention. According to the ILC commentary, it further does not apply to situations involving armed conflicts. A further limitation of the scope of the Convention results from the non-retroactivity as set out in Article 4. The decisive moment that decides on the applicability of the Convention Ratione Temporis is that of the institution of a proceeding against the state before a court of another state and not the moment when the act under scrutiny was performed. Furthermore, the Convention gives priority to other treaties of a general or special nature regarding the matter of state immunity. According to the final clause of the preamble, the rules of customary international law continue to govern the matters not regulated by the Convention. This is the case regarding inter alia state immunity in criminal proceedings or the immunity ratione persone of state representatives. Although the Convention confirms the restrictive approach, it establishes in its Article 5 as a basic rule that states enjoy immunity, which is to be determined by the courts on their own initiative and is only restricted in accordance with the Convention. As already noted, the restriction of immunity can result either from an explicit or implicit waiver, respectively consent, or automatically ex lege. Thus, a state can waive its immunity explicitly. So, for instance, by its consent to the exercise of jurisdiction of a foreign state. This consent can result from an international agreement, a written contract, or a declaration before the court, or from a written communication in a proceeding. It has to be stated already here that such consent to the exercise of jurisdiction does not imply consent to the application of measures of constraint. An implicit waiver of community results from the conduct in court, either through participation in proceedings or the raising of counterclaims. To quote an example, a state that has submitted to the jurisdiction of a foreign state by instituting proceedings cannot claim immunity with regard to a counterclaim arising out of the same legal relationship or facts as the principal claim. Part 3 of the Convention, which is the core of the restrictive approach, enumerates proceedings in which the state cannot invoke immunity from the jurisdiction of a court of another state based either on the substance of the issue under dispute or on the means of dispute settlement. According to the development of the rules on state immunity towards the restrictive approach, based on the distinction between acta jure imperii and acta jure gestionis, one of the basic is issues dealt with by the Convention is the definition of commercial acts for which the state does not enjoy immunity. For this purpose, the Convention first identifies three categories of transactions which are to be treated as commercial, namely commercial contracts or transactions for the sale of goods or supply of services, contracts for a loan or other transactions of a financial nature, as well as other contracts of a commercial, industrial, trading or professional nature except 
employment contracts. As to the acts characterized as commercial or acta juriquestiones, it is necessary to find an appropriate criterion that separates them from the acta jure imperii. The identification of this criterion has always been subject of intensive discussions. Since some states applied the nature test, according to which the nature of the act should be insofar decisive as if the act could be performed also by private individuals, the states would not enjoy immunity. Others applied the purpose test, according to which the state should enjoy immunity if the transaction was entered into for sovereign purposes. So, for instance, a contract concerning the building of the premises of a diplomatic mission. According to the final version contained in the text, as you see, quote, in determining whether a contract or transaction is a commercial transaction under paragraph 1c, reference should be made primarily to the nature of the contract or transaction, but its purpose should also be taken into account if the parties to the contract or transactions have so agreed, or if, in the practice of the forum state, that purpose is relevant to determining the non-commercial character of the contract and transaction. So far, the text of this article. Thus, the nature test is to be applied. It is, however, not applied if the purpose test is agreed upon by the parties to the contract or if the use of this criterion follows from the relevant practice of the forum state. Hence, the state parties can agree already in advance in the relevant contract to apply the purpose test or achieve the same result by the selection of the forum state, whereas the practice of the defendant state is not a decisive factor. In this context, the question of state enterprises that do not enjoy immunity was raised since some industrialized countries were afraid that states could easily escape their financial obligations by establishing separate legal entities for the conclusion of commercial contracts without providing them with the necessary financial means, so-called undercapitalization. They suggested the admissibility of piercing the corporate veil of the enterprises in order to ensure the liability of the state in case the state enterprise or other entity acted as an authorized agent of the state, where the state acted as a guarantor of a liability of the entity, or the state entity had deliberately misrepresented its financial position or subsequently reduced its assets to avoid satisfying the claim or where fraud or injustice was involved. The compromise found in Article 10, Paragraph 3 of the Convention leaves the question of piercing the corporate veil open, since according to the understanding to this provision, the letter does not prejudge the question of piercing the corporate veil, questions relating to a situation where a state entity has deliberately misrepresented its financial position or subsequently reduced its assets to avoid satisfying a claim or other related issues. A similar understanding is added to Article 19 concerning enforcement measures. Another problem was raised by the contracts of employment between a state and an individual for works performed or to be performed in the form state, as employment contracts do not fall under commercial acts. 
This matter is governed by opposing interests. The employer state is interested in the exclusion of interference from the forum state in the selection and the recruitment of the employee so that it can exercise disciplinary supervision over its governmental employees as well as ensure compliance with its internal regulations. The forum state, however, has an interest in the protection of its labor, local labor force and in the application of its labor laws on its territory. According to Article 11 of the Convention, the basic rule is that the employer state cannot invoke immunity before the courts of the forum state. However, this rule is subject to various exceptions, as you can see from the text of this article. States enjoy immunity in proceedings concerning employees who have been recruited to perform particular functions in the exercise of governmental authority. And in this regard, the Convention now expressly mentions diplomatic agents, consular officers, member of the diplomatic staff of a permanent mission to an international organization or of a special mission, or recruited to represent a state at an international conference, as well as any other person enjoying diplomatic immunity. The reference to diplomatic immunities indicates that it does not cover administrative and technical staff of diplomatic missions. Subject to their functions performed at the missions, however, these employees could fall under the general category of persons recruited to perform particular functions in the exercise of governmental authority. As far as the substance of a claim is concerned, an employer state cannot invoke immunity in proceedings concerning employees performing auxiliary functions who are nationals of the forum state or nationals of a third state permanent resident in the forum state with the exclusion of proceedings concerning recruitment, renewal of employment, a reinstatement of the employee and proceedings that do interfere with national security interests of the employer state. The general fear of interference by foreign states becomes manifest in their understanding with respect to Article 11, which refers to Article 38, Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, and Article 71 of the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations, according to which, quote, the receiving state has a duty to exercise its jurisdiction in such a manner as not to interfere unduly with the performance of the functions of the mission or the consular post, unquote. An interesting exception from immunity results from Article 12, what you can see on uh, Table 4, according to which, in proceedings concerning personal injuries and damage to property, a state cannot claim immunity as regards civil liability in relation to the death or injury of a person as well as damage to or loss of tangible property caused by an act or mission of a foreign state provided that the act or mission occurred in whole or in part in the territory of the forum state and that the author of the act or omission was present in that territory at the time of the act or the omission. Originally, this provision was deemed to address torts caused by traffic accidents in the area of the transport of goods and passengers. However, the wording allows a wider interpretation including intentional physical harm 
up to homicide and political assassination. The exception from immunity pursuant to this provision is limited to claims to pecuniary compensation. Other cases where no immunity can be invoked include proceedings regarding various property rights, proceedings regarding intellectual industrial property in the broadest sense, regarding a state's participation in a company or other collective body from the private sector, or concerning the operation of a ship used for other than government non-commercial purposes. Further, the state does not enjoy immunity in proceedings relating to arbitration agreements in commercial transactions, including investment matters. Besides the definition of the criterion for the acta juridicationis, major concerns were raised with regard to measures of constraint. One must not forget that enforcement measures are considered to be most likely to intrude the sovereign rights of a state so that the states apply a more cautious approach. It is already for this reason that consent of a state to the taking of enforcement measures must be issued separately from that to the exercise of jurisdiction. In this matter, again, divergent interests are involved. The interests of the states in protecting their property from measures of constraints, as well as the interests of private parties to obtain satisfaction of a claim. In general, immunity from execution raises two basic questions. First, which property may be the subject of measures of constraint? And secondly, whether a state that did not enjoy immunity in the proceedings on the merits should be able to invoke immunity from execution. This matter underwent intensive debates in the course of the elaboration of the Convention, and the most divergent views were expressed including that no enforcement measures should be admitted. The Convention now declares specific categories of properties immune against measures of constraint. The non-exhaustive list contains property in use for the functions of diplomatic or consular missions, including any bank account, property used in the performance of military functions, property of a central bank or other monetary authority of the state, property forming part of the cultural heritage of the state or part of its archives, as well as property forming part of an exhibition of objects of scientific, cultural or historical interest, a matter of particular concern at the moment. As to other property, the Convention distinguishes between prejudgment and post-judgment measures of constraint. It must be kept in mind that even prejudgment measures, such as those to secure property pending trial, the prohibition to perform transfer of funds or securities in favor of third parties, for judicial costs and security of expenses, can amount to a considerable sum of money. Post-judgment measures mainly consist of those relating to the execution of the judgment. Both kinds of measures may be taken with the consent of the defendant state which can be expressed in different forms, or in the case the state has allocated or earmarked property for the satisfaction of the claim. Regarding post-judgment measures, it was mainly debated whether still other property could become subject of such measures. The compromise found in the Convention 
as you can find in Table 5, provides that such measures are additionally permitted with regard to property specifically in use by the state for commercial purposes, provided that this property is situated in the territory of the forum state and has a connection with the entity against which the proceedings was directed. The criterion of the connection with the entity replaced that of the connection with the relevant case. What prompted a discussion on whether the scope was broadened or narrowed. But even if it was narrowed, this has been compensated by the understandings with respect to Article 19, according to which the term connection comprises not only ownership or possession, but is to be understood in a broader sense. It must also be taken into account that measures of constraints against property belonging to a separate legal entity that nevertheless belongs to the state in the meaning of the Convention could meet with legal obstacles in various national legal orders. The understanding clarifies that the expression entity means the state in the sense of the definition of the state laid down in Article 2, Parallel B of the Convention. According to the same understanding, the Convention leaves open the question of piercing the corporate veil in cases of an undercapitalized state entity. In any case, the solution found in this article constitutes a major achievement of the Convention, in particular in view of the fact that even the European Convention had not achieved an adequate solution for this matter. Part 5 of the Convention contains provisions relating to the status of the state in the procedures. They reflect the particular status of the foreign state as a state. A default judgment on the grounds of the mere absence of the defendant state may be rendered only after the expiry of a period of at least four months after service of process has been effected. A state also enjoys certain privileges and immunities during court proceeding, insofar as in particular no fine or penalty shall be imposed on the state's refusal to comply with orders to perform a specific act or disclose any document. Furthermore, a respondent state is exempt from providing any security, bond or deposit to guarantee the payment of the judicial costs of a proceeding. In order to obtain ratifications or accessions by the largest number of states as possible, the Convention shows a certain degree of flexibility. Insofar as it may be denounced and does not contain any provisions on reservations, so that the regime of reservations contained in the Vienna Convention of the Law and Treaty applies. In order to provide for an early entry into force, the ratification or accession of only 30 states is required for this purpose. Despite certain criticisms, the Convention has to be seen as a major achievement that is based on the consent of a great variety of states. The progress achieved by the Convention consists in the affirmation of the restrictive approach concerning immunity, as well as in the regulation of measures of enforcement against state property. It is the first universal convention on the topic of state immunity of general scope that reflects a general feeling of the need for such a convention, at a time 
where states are increasingly becoming engaged in economic activities and transactions with private partners. The universality mirrors also the globalizations of such economic activities, which requires regulation covering undertakings of a global scale. The Convention is in the interest of states that growingly depend on the possibility of entering into transactions with foreign private partners, since otherwise they would run the risk of being rejected as partners in such transactions. Accordingly, it guarantees a smooth further development of international trade and economics. It must also be acknowledged that by replacing the concept of absolute immunity by that of restrictive immunity, this convention contributes to an increase of accountability of states in the interests of private persons and private entities that have entered into transactions with their states.